Whatever you do, whatever you enjoy, you need your health. Welcome to the Original Guide to Men's Health, a podcast designed for men of all ages to learn about and access good health. This guide shares knowledge on how to be and stay healthy. Maintenance and prevention strategies, along with reviews of conditions and issues affecting wellness are explored. Please join me, your host, Dr. Richard Pellman, as I interview renowned experts who will provide you with timely, relevant, and vital information so that you can embark on a journey towards better health. For more information from this podcast, including take-home points and resource links, we invite you to visit our website, theoriginalguidetomenshealth.org. You can also find us on social media. We invite you to follow us there and share episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn. On this episode of The Original Guide to Men's Health, we'll be reviewing what you should know about health insurance, Medicare, and the role of pharmacy benefit managers. Really, this is navigating the healthcare system, part two. We have a prior episode, 17, in the original Guide to Men's Health, titled Understanding and Navigating the Health Insurance System. This is really an update and an expanded version with more current issues that anyone who participates in receiving health care or has health insurance or perhaps doesn't have health insurance or is contemplating health insurance should listen to. This is a very confusing, a very complex subject. And our guest, Dr. Jeffrey Frankel, helps break down these complex issues and subjects. Dr. Frankel was our prior guest and again joins us. Dr. Frankel has practiced urology in the King County area since 1985. He is a past president of the Washington State Urology Society, a past president of the Western Section of the American Urological Association, a past president of the American Association of Clinical Urologists, and he currently chairs the Government Affairs Committee for the Washington State Urology Society. Well, welcome, Dr. Frankel. Thanks for joining us again. And I guess what we would call is insurance or health insurance part two. You have a wonderful episode previously with with, uh, myself, you, and Mark Painter of Physician Reimbursement Systems. But let's look again at insurance and some of the subjects that I think are worth looking into more closely. Insurance is confusing for physicians, for patients. And it's hugely complex. It is not simple. And I guess most people either purchase insurance, health insurance for themselves, or their employer does, or they have DSHS or their Medicare. And then there's different types of Medicare plans, and then there's open enrollment. And so even that's not simple. But when somebody has health insurance, and let's drill down on those that do of some type, and they go to the physician's office, they feel, well, I have insurance and whatever I'm going to do should be covered. So that isn't always a true assumption, is it? Well, Rich, thanks for having me back. You know, unfortunately, it is sad when someone gets sick, they think they have coverage, 
and they deserve to have coverage. And then they go to the providers and it's not what they think. And unfortunately, it's like any of us, you might have homeowner's insurance. Until something happens, you get robbed. You don't know exactly what the policy says. And it really depends if you're a independent individual in a small business. It depends if you're part of a large corporation. It depends if you're on Medicare. And as you mentioned, Medicaid. So all those buckets have different types of coverage and different types of requirements for the person. So it's difficult for the provider who really is planning to see you and take care of you. And then when the patient comes to the front desk, that's where the problems begin. I think a lot of people assume that, well, I have a fairly well-known insurance. How come you don't know what you're going to do is going to be covered for me or not? Yet people don't really know that within a large insurance company, there can be hundreds of different subsets of plans, depending on, like you said, is the patient who you're seeing employed by a large employer, an individual employer? There are all kinds of products out there. And one physician office cannot keep track of all those. So sometimes patients will call ahead um, if it's an elective appointment to say, do you take so-and-so type insurance? Usually, you can answer that question. Now, it does depend on the specifics. As you mentioned, there's much subtypes. There's also copay issues. Even though a patient has insurance, they may not have full coverage. Obamacare was a good example of that. People thought they were fully covered, and the bill did provide catastrophic coverage. But the deductible for uh, two people was $12,000. So they think they're fully covered, but then bills start showing up they can't afford, and then who's going to pay those bills? So usually people do get taken care of. Most physicians do that. Currently, most providers of health care, for sure in the state of Washington, are employed or under the authority of a health care system or an insurance company. By insurance company, the biggest provider the biggest employer of healthcare providers in the United States is Optum, which is a subsidiary of United Healthcare. So the physician frequently is working within these organizations and are subject to those rules. So that's a significant change from when you and I started practice where people opened up their own shops, it was their own business, they had their own uh, ID number, they paid their own taxes. They hired their own personnel. And we've really seen a significant swing as far as physician providers now becoming employed, like you said, by healthcare systems, by hospitals, by clinics, and even by insurers. Correct. It's a major change. I'm not sure that uh, the public understands that. And I'm sure you'll have some questions on like Medicare Advantage plans or how insurance companies bundle insurance coverage. And most of the time, it is through a system. If you buy a policy and the company you work for has an agreement with a certain hospital, it depends who owns that hospital as the primary care providers are generally employed. And now most of the specialists are also uh, under that umbrella. So you'll have a somewhat a limited network to go to. We even have practices, meaning physician provider practices, that are owned by venture groups or Wall Street, in a sense. Over the years, 
urologists getting together to try to remain independent, feeling that the one or two man shop was not viable. Some as large as 50 and 100 people got together, and yet they didn't feel that they could compete against some of the healthcare systems. So now private equity and venture capital is supporting those practices to remain independent, correct? And there still are some independent practices linked nationwide. They are, by numbers, staying successful. Yes, we do have, of course, when you look nationally, there's independent practices. It's less common in the urban areas. It's more common in smaller cities or in the Midwest. You see that. But in general, for instance, in Seattle, where we are, King County, in our field, there's very few urologists that are independent anymore. If you go back 10 years ago, unless you worked at the university or Kaiser Group Health at that time, it it was probably 80% independent. So that's a big change. So while we're on looking at these delivery systems, before we get back to the insurers or the insurance products themselves, these systems look at what they're going to be receiving from the insurance plan and decide whether they're going to accept it or not. If it's not a profitable equity for them, they may say, no, we don't want to do business with you. Right. I mean, you have, I'm sure, heard of Blue Crosses, Regents, whatever, having a spat with a hospital. It usually means the healthcare system or the insurance that they have to deal with. So a hospital may have to say, listen, as a provider, we can no longer accept certain insurance because it's no longer profitable. That is a problem for the community once you have consolidation, because the power starts to lie within the insurance carrier or the hospital system. I mean, there's so many rules that that are local. You have to look into it yourself. Even a national company like Boeing, they have to deal with the local insurance carriers. And as an aside, Medicare is the common insurance for those over 65. People think Medicare is a national plan and it is a federal government insurance program, but it's not consistent over the entire country. It's divided into approximately eight districts and each somewhat make their own rules, although it's funded by the federal government. So to be clear about that, you were in the East Coast and were about to have procedure, found out that you're uh, now moving to the West Coast and assuming that because you had previously been approved as a Medicare patient for that procedure that you're going to be covered, it might not be so. And that's a dilemma. I, unfortunately, most physicians are focused on quality care for the patient. And if someone sees the physician, they're going to make a recommendation. It's only when that recommendation goes to the carrier that you find out whether it is or is not covered, particularly some of the newer procedures, which have to go through a vetting process by Medicare to get approval. They have committees that review it and see if it's worth funding. So confusing and difficult for the patient population who may say, you know, the doctor that I've seen for the last X or the clinic that I've gone to is no longer taking my insurance. What do I do? Who do I go to? Where do I go? And then if they do, are they still under the same sort of coverage umbrella that they used to be? And so the onus, again, really falls on the individual to do some checking with their insurance company and to double check with the physician's office, is this going to be covered? Yes, it's really important for the uh, Medicare traditional plans 
versus the Medicare Advantage plans. I think that's important to discuss because there's a lot of commercials that come about and all of them are for Medicare Advantage plans. And these are really a form approved by the federal government to kind of privatize Medicare in a certain regard. And these are put out by the insurance companies and Medicare Part B, as in boy, is how the physicians are paid. And Part A is the hospital part that's mostly fully covered through the government, regardless. Part B is where patients have out-of-pocket expenses and have to pay premiums, either have to write a check or it's taken out of their Social Security payment. If you go with the Medicare Advantage plans, they pick a system. And your provider, if you have traditional, may not be part of that plan. They negotiate discounts to get networks to join them, and the government pays them a fixed premium based on the patient mix that they have. So you have to be quite careful when you sign up for a plan that may be less expensive as a premium, but there's consequences for that lower premium, such as restricted access to care. And also, they do deny more procedures and prescriptions than traditional Medicare. Somebody who takes a Medicare Advantage basically assigns their Medicare reimbursement that they would normally get to the carrier that they've signed up with. So you as an individual no longer have Medicare taking care of you directly. That's where it gets particularly confusing for the practitioner. And you hate to have the public and the patients get mad at the doctor who's trying to take care of you when they say, okay, I've got Medicare and innocently the patient does have Medicare, but they don't understand the form of Medicare. So when the procedure is scheduled, either the hospital they want to go to is not part of their Medicare Advantage plan or their pharmacy benefits have a formulary. It's it's more restricted than traditional Medicare. And all these things are frustration and a roadblock to care. And then we could talk about prior authorization and other things that also get in the way of care. Well, let's kind of do a little segue into that. First, I'm going to say most practices that do expensive procedures like surgery will have a surgery scheduler who does check with the insurance so the patient is not hung out on a huge ticket because a surgery would not only be the cost reimbursement to the surgeon who's performing the procedure, but to the facility where it's being done, uh, all the hospital time, all of that is a huge bundle. Oh, yes. And the sad, sad uh, problem with healthcare, and this has been a problem for my whole career, if a patient comes and really just asks a very logical question, how much will this procedure cost? I can find out how much it'll cost the patient for me to take care of the patient as the individual surgeon. But then, as you say, if the procedure is done at the hospital, it's very difficult to find out what the hospital charge to the patient will be because behind the scenes, there's different contracts that the patient's insurance company has with the hospital. So they may have a, what they call a rack rate or what they say to the public, but it really doesn't mean the patient will pay that amount of money. Plus, they have co-pays that they're responsible for, deductibles they're responsible to, for. And there's also other providers that may get involved. You may have to have a consult at the hospital. You may have to do a pathology analysis of some tissue. You may have to have an anesthesiologist involved. 
So it becomes a very, very difficult. And the patient usually trusts the insurance company that they will take care of the problem. Sometimes that leads to some unfortunate surprises. And, you know, along that line, they see a physician who is in their network that they know the physician is covered by their insurance. But the physician says, I need to send you to another specialist. This is a doctor that I think has really good outcomes, results, and is convenient, close by. I work a lot with this physician. The patient goes there, and that physician may not be in the network and in the coverage area. Rich, that's a very common scenario, and most patients do trust the referrals and trust who the doctor recommends them to see. It's even worse when it comes to emergency rooms, actually, where patients think a hospital is in their network, but they found out that the physician who presides the emergency room service is not in the network. The radiologist or the department may not be in the network, and the surgeon who has to come into the ER to see them. And that's why you hear about these, quote, surprise bills are talked about. That's what brings that about, where in-network hospitals don't necessarily have in-network providers. And in fact, that led to some legislation because the patient goes, well, I came and they told me that they were going to send in this specialist or I needed this procedure, I needed this x-ray, or I needed to have X, Y, or Z. And then I got a bill for it. And they're going... Yeah, particularly in the emergency situation where the person's in the emergency department They don't really have a chance to do any investigation. So there is legislation to protect the patient. There's bills that have been passed at the state level and federally to prevent these, quote, surprise bills. Well, let's go back to something that you mentioned. The patient is seeing a physician who is in the network. Physician says, I think we need to get an MRI. And the patient says, what about a CAT scan? Well, an MRI is actually the better study for what we're looking at. Okay, what happens sometimes? (laughs) Well, you know, again, I'm trying to explain. It doesn't make it simple for the patient. That's the sad thing. Unless you're a CAS-based healthcare patient, you're subject to the rules of your health plan. And frequently they will say, let's see if we can do a less expensive test. So they will, you know, a request goes in to make the appointment. You'll get a call. Usually the patient or the provider will say, you know what? Your MRI was denied. They'll approve an ultrasound. Now, sometimes an ultrasound is adequate to diagnose certain things, but it may not be what the physician thought would be best for you. You may have to get that ultrasound wait for the report, delays care, it may solve the problem, but may not answer the question. Then you have a chance to appeal and re-up for the MRI or a CAT scan. So sometimes these roadblocks or speed bumps are put in to try to, of course, decrease the expense to the insurance company. And really, we're all interested in the global healthcare dollar. We do have limited resources, no matter what. So I think most physicians are conscious of that, but we do want to list, initially at least order what we think is the best test for the patient. And that will then sometimes come to what's called, as you uh, acknowledge, prior authorization, meaning the insurer says, we're not going to cover that till the physician's office has a discussion 
with our authorizing administrative personnel. Sometimes that may be a nurse. Sometimes it may be a physician. It depends on what the procedure is. But that goes to the physician, to the insurer. And who does that in the physician's office? Well, there's no question that that is such a sore spot for a lot of providers. And going back to the employed model, that's why a lot of physicians kind of went out of private practice. Because what we used to call unfunded mandates, we're trying to take care of the patients, we order a test, and then the insurance company is coming back and making you send in records, answer phone calls. And then if the uh, procedure is not approved, the patient who has face-to-face knowledge of you comes back and gets mad at the physician for not having this test approved. Many times we will get uh, faxes sent to us or not. In other words, the company says we sent in something, but it really never showed up. And then things get delayed and delayed and delayed. It particularly started with pharmaceutical drug benefits, and now it's spread to laboratory tests as well as x-rays. So that's a very frustrating position. Usually people have to be hired. I really encourage the patients to really understand what it takes to get prior authorizations. Frequently, it's a boilerplate computer system that someone who has no medical education is just looking at. It was provided by the insurance company. They have certain buzzwords or criteria that it takes to approve the test. And if those are there, it gets approved. But if not, it gets rejected without really any further conversation. You can, if you're trying to champion care for the patient, try to appeal that. The appeal takes up setting up multiple other phone calls. It may be with a nurse, it may be with a physician, not even within the specialty. So it's quite complex. So let's, while we're on that subject, let's, you mentioned pharmaceuticals. Um, You're a physician. You know that in this particular circumstance for this particular patient and this particular patient's problem, that this is the best medication. So you've prescribed it. Patient goes to pick it up and the pharmacist tells them, well, uh, this isn't really on your plan. What is that about? Right. So most healthcare plans have a what's called a formulary. The formulary has a list of approved medications by the insurance company. These formularies are really put together by pharmacy benefit managers, and these are set up between the health plans and the pharmacy, let's say. When the patient goes in, most of the approved drugs, if possible, are generics. They're less expensive. Now, sometimes the pharmacist will call the office and say, I'm sorry, the thing you provided is more expensive. It only may mean that the copay was $5 versus $20. And a patient may be willing to spend that $20 to get that other medication. But yet the message to the physician's office is it's too expensive. The patient is kind of given an alternative. It may not be the first or second choice. They also frequently deny a prescription without really telling you what is covered by the health plan. So then you're struggling to say, okay, now I've got to reorder the medication. Meanwhile, the patient is not getting treatment for the problem they came in for. So it's a very, very frustrating situation for the physician 
and for the patient. And I'll say, even if it's a medication that the patient has been taking chronically, and let's say that they have straight Medicare, they have a drug plan, and they're used to taking this medicine through the plan and understand what they've been paying, that can change from year to year. And that's something that is an obligation of a patient to check every year, probably during open enrollment period, and say, what are my medicines going to cost me this year if I stay on this same drug plan? We're talking about frustrations for the patients and the doctors, particularly at the beginning of a year, because people, the open enrollment for Medicare, let's say, is mid-October through early December. That's when you see most of the advertisements. Patients may change their plan, which could affect their provider and definitely their formulary. And even if you've gone through all the work to get something approved, and you may be on something that's working quite well, at the beginning of the year, a letter will show up saying you're now going to get one month of this medication, but you have to have a switch. And they'll recommend a medication that you probably already failed. Um, that is incredibly frustrating for the patient. And of course, the physician has to go through the paperwork. There's lots of rules and regulations and actual legislation that's being advocated to help protect patients from these changes that's going on as we speak. You mentioned pharmacy benefit managers. Are those independent contractors or do they work for the insurance company or who are they? <laughs> Well, you know the movie, The Wizard of Oz, and at the end, you know, they pull the curtain back and you see who's actually operating. Pharmacy benefit managers were formed in the 1960s, and they are adjudications between the healthcare plans and the pharmaceutical company, actually. And they're the ones, again, who set these prices, and they have behind the curtain, they have rebates and discounts. But the money has gone to those companies. They're independent from the other companies. And I say that with quotes because they became so profitable that the insurance companies now own the PBMs. For instance, Cigna in 2018 bought Express Scripts. Express Scripts was an independent pharmacy benefit company. They became so profitable Cigna paid about $60 billion, with a B, dollars for Express Scripts. So all of these, again, Optum is an insurance company. It's under the umbrella of United Healthcare. And really, if you go to a provider that's employed by Optum and you have another insurance company, you may get a letter saying you cannot be taken care of by the provider because it's so important for them to get what I hate to say is profits out of that prescription. So I, there are bills right now, basic bills in Congress to try to just say, let's make PBMs more transparent so we know how they work. We know where all this money is coming from. I'd like to actually comment also on the vertical integration of healthcare systems lately. For instance, CVS Caremart now owns and bought Aetna. So they're integrated into one company now. They're separate technically, but they're one company. And I think the public doesn't really understand what's happening with healthcare. And then under that, they also employ providers. So now you've got providers, 
you've got the pharmaceutical company and you've got the insurance company all vertically integrated into healthcare. So, so these are big items. So actually a pharmaceutical company, not a manufacturer, but a supplier. No, no, we're talking about the supplier. So CVS is your pharmacy, your local pharmacy. They own Aetna now. So all your prescriptions, really, they'll probably say you are preferred pharmacy is CVS. Well, that makes business sense for them. It is a, a consolidation. It's a confusing world for a consumer. How do people manage this? I mean, like we started off saying it's difficult for physicians. How does the public navigate this? Well, you know, I would love to say I've got one plus one equals two, but it's not so simple. If you just look at your community, you do see the small mom and pop pharmacies are gone. Most big cities, the local hospital is now part of a system. And as I mentioned earlier, the physicians are part of the system. Something that's sometimes out of patient's control is to stay healthy, right? The majority of people don't have to use their insurance because they're healthy. It's once you get into the system, either through no fault of your own, develop a problem and have to be seen, that's where the rubber hits the road. And either family, I see so many Medicare patients who are trying to navigate this. Sometimes it takes the whole family or it takes a village to try to figure out how to get their health care taken care of. So, you know, the simple answer is to be aware of the package that you are subscribing for. If you're in a big company, go to Human Resources, who really helps provide the interface to those plans. And just because you're saving money on the premium, that may sound good up front, but then when you actually need it, it's like anything else in life, you pay what you get for frequently. So be aware of what that discount, how that relates to you if you do need to use those benefits. I would also strongly look at the deductibles and co-pays that you may have to pay. And be aware, it can change from year to year. Yeah, yeah. So I just want to go back to uh, one other thing that patients sometimes are unaware of how this happens. But they go say, see their primary care physician. Blood work is ordered. They go to the lab, they have it drawn, and they get a bill from the lab and saying uncovered service, or it's just a notification, not an actual bill. Now, maybe you have, if you're Medicare, a secondary that will pick it up, but sometimes whatever that blood test was, or we talked about radiological studies, x-rays, it's not covered. Sometimes it has to do with what is called a code that is applied to that test. So we as physicians have to supply the reason we're ordering the test is called a code. And one code might not be covered for the same test as another code that will get that test covered. And sometimes a primary care physician doesn't really distinguish that. I mean, it's not their job, right? They're ordering the test that they think is necessary for the patient, but they may not know the code. Go into a little bit about how this coding system works and what happens there. Yes. So again, Besides having gone through medical education and all the diagnosis and treatments, you have to understand this coding system. So there's hundreds and hundreds of codes. There's office visit codes, there's surgical codes, 
and the codes are divided depend on the system, the organ system. So there's codes for the skin, there's codes for the urinary system, there's codes for general surgery, there's codes for orthopedic surgery. Sometimes they also have codes for the lab tests and the radiology procedures. And then different providers have different codes they have to submit. So the government has this, it's called CPT codes. This is in a book that's published. You have to set a code associated with every diagnosis. So there's diagnostic codes and there's billing codes. So you really have to have both of them together, both be in sync. Most of the time, it is pretty straightforward and gets covered. What happens is, you're absolutely right, the physician doesn't know if it's covered under that individual plan or not. Also, lab companies are usually separate like LabCorp, for instance, that's a separate company that runs their own business. You go in there with the physician's order, get your blood drawn, and then you find out the results. The billing is totally separate. And as you may be aware, Medicare is not a big screening. The tests that they cover is really for when you're sick. It's not meant so much for preventive care. There are carve-outs for that, like colonoscopies are covered and things like that. But in general, Medicare is an insurance for when you need help. So a lot of these preventive codes are not covered by Medicare particularly, and private insurance frequently will follow the rules of Medicare. So there may be a number of codes for the same blood test. We'll use, since we're urologists, prostate-specific antigen. We can order a screening PSA, which I think Medicare covers once a year. But say your PSA is abnormal, and your physician says, let's repeat that. If they put rising PSA, that may not be covered, or elevated PSA not be covered, but rising PSA might be. And those are all existing codes. They're like a number of PSA codes, and you have to know which one hopefully will get covered for the patient. Yeah, it depends if your provider is primary care versus a specialist. A lot of times the specialist, their codes will get covered easier than a primary care physician using the same code, same CPT uh, set of numbers. There's actually still copay issues. There's actually movements and legislation to say, listen, even if you cover a screening PSA test, which we do have in the state of Washington, thanks to efforts by the Washington State Urology Society and others, it is covered in our state, but there still can be co-pays for those tests that are prohibitive. So there's nationwide movements to try to eliminate some of the co-pays for certain screening things like breast cancer and prostate cancer. So they may be covered, but what's the co-pay that you have to pay even though it's covered on one end, do you have the money to pay for that part of it that's your responsibility? That's just to make certain that everybody who's listening is aware of some of the terms we've been using. Um, just Medicare, we talked about A, B, and D. What, what does that mean? Medicare Part A. So I mentioned earlier, A is the hospital portion. So if you're hospitalized, there is a bill associated with that. Medicare usually has a payment rate per day in the hospital, depending on your severity of illness. That's negotiated and actually published. There's a deductible that's associated with Part A that you're subject to. 
Part B is the physician's part of it. That's the premium I mentioned that you pay for that goes up and down every year, depending on the cost of care in that bucket of money. There are so some medications that are given in the office of the physician that's under Part B as in boy. Part D is really the drug benefit plan. It's really more recent. And that is where patients have benefits, but there's also what you've heard of called the quote donut hole, where you have deductibles. And until you reach that deductible, you have out-of-pocket expenses. Now, the new, recently Congress passed a limit on the donut hole. So going into effect in January, you may see some changes. They've already put in place some reductions in insulin and things like that. So again, follow the, the rules but that's what A, B, and C, and, and D is. C is having to do with disability and nursing facilities. And then we talked about open enrollment. For somebody who's younger who is not yet aware of Medicare and how it works, open enrollment is an opportunity to review your plan, decide whether you're going to stay in it or change. Correct? Correct. So, again, as I mentioned, usually in October, you'll start getting inundated with solicitations in at the quote open enrollment and you may look that's a good time to really get out your book look at the benefits that you have see if your health has changed see if your providers and that's the time to really try to call your provider or the insurance company themselves and say listen is dr smith still part of my plan it's particularly if you're planning to switch because not only if you switch plans, could you lose your provider? But sometimes the provider does not want to continue with the plan for various reasons. So if you're in Medicare, that's a good time to switch and either go with Medicare Advantage or traditional Medicare, as we discussed earlier. So that goes on for about two months. And if somebody's in an Advantage plan unhappy because of an experience or something that wasn't covered, they can switch out of Advantage plan at that point? Right, right. It really can be confusing. It's within Medicare, it's like G means traditional Medicare, where you can go see anyone in the United States, regardless, without co-pays and without restrictions, but the premium is higher. So Medicare does have a adjusted premium rate depending on the income of the person based on their IRS filings and tax return. So you'll see that the premiums are not maybe the same as your friend or your neighbor based on different incomes. So um, that's another factor to look into. And that can change uh, when you first sign up for Medicare. If you're working and not yet retired, your premium may be higher. And then after you retire, your income may go down. You're living on retirement. It's time to go back to Medicare and ask them to review, or do they automatically do a review of your... They will automatically look at it. The, the issue now is just with the IRS and the tax returns are delayed. They sometimes have to catch up. So it's it's frustrating, but usually the government, that's one thing they're pretty good at is eventually adjudicating what your income is relative to your premium, because the premium is going to be deducted automatically if you get social security. They take that out first before that check arrives. So it's very important to keep track of it. I wouldn't panic if it's not accurate initially, because it takes time for the IRS to send over your income statement based on your tax return. 
And when we uh, talked about Part D and open enrollment, again, that is traditional Medicare drug plan because some Advantage plans say they cover medications. That's an important question because your medications, again, you should see if they're covered. It may change. And I found that sometimes patients would say, you know, it's cheaper if I just pay, that they actually have higher co-pays if they use their pharmacy benefit than if they say, I'm going to pay cash or use some of these other programs that are discount cards that are available. And those can actually, pharmacies have, again, a third separate bucket of money they may not tell you about. But if you say, I've got this certain card that advertises a discount, they'll run that through and see if it's actually cheaper for you to pay with that discount card versus what your insurance covers. And as we alluded to earlier, say you are traditional Medicare, you have an independent Part D insurance company covering your medications. The pharmacy that you're used to going to, because it's convenient and close, may or may not continue to contract with that particular insurer. So again, you want to check and make sure either call your insurance and say, do you still do business with this pharmacy during the open enrollment? Being attached to the pharmacy that's convenient to you is really important. Then you say, well, what plan should I go to that will stay connected business-wise to this pharmacy? Now, the drugs might cost more. Well, I wish I could, during this time, say that things are simple. but they're not. And particularly when I talked about these integrated business models, that becomes more and more relevant as companies start purchasing or or gobbling up whatever word you want to use for an investment. And then sub- subsequently, things are excluded that you thought were covered. So we haven't really spoken about DSHS. So just briefly review, what is DSHS? What happens there? How are people covered or not covered? How do they get it? Yeah, so different states call it differently, but globally, it's like the Medicaid population, and it is a large proportion of patients. And it fits multiple buckets of patients who have certain income levels. And this is really, there's a federal level for Medicaid and there's state levels. So it really depends on the state. So if you're listening to this podcast from Louisiana, It's going to be different than California. It's going to be different than Washington, different than Texas. So Medicare coverage is set as a base from the federal government, but then states sometimes enhance those benefits for certain people who are disadvantaged, either with disabilities, low income, single mothers with multiple children, or even one child. So they have benefits that the state provides. Now, a provider or system, again, has to accept that um, plan. Basically, now private insurance is frequently administering the Medicaid plan. So there is a middleman kind of in the process there. Really, the disadvantaged have coverage if they know how to fill out the applications and qualify. Again, you've got to look at your state benefit for those patients, and it is quite a bit of patients. So somebody who's uh, in lower income, no insurance through their employer, maybe they're part-time or it's just not something they have or they're not working enough hours to qualify or they're independent and don't have insurance. Something happens and they are bare. They have no coverage. What can they do? They can apply for Medicaid and Medicaid, again, 
has to go through the state or a, you know, in our state, it's Apple plan. I mean, there's different insurances that then adjudicate the Medicaid plan. There may or may not be some very slight co-pays. I think the the public needs to understand that there is benefits for you. However, the state pays a discounted rate to the hospital and to particularly the providers or the physicians. So there are some physicians who said, if I took Medicaid as all my patients, I couldn't keep the doors open. You have discounted payments, and this is usually not discussed with the patient. We try to take care of everyone equally, but sometimes it is harder to get an appointment because you have the provider has to accept that discounted payment that the government sets. So there's no uh, ability for the uh, providers, and that's a big issue with inflation and government set rates. I think people need to understand that Medicare sets the rate, Medicaid sets the rate. So if uh, there's a rule in the state that we're going to raise minimum wage, for instance, there's no way to pass that on to the public. Good or bad, the physicians or the hospital systems have to absorb those costs. Yeah, I just uh, make a point since you brought that up, particularly for the independent practicing providers, the physicians who open their own office, pay an overhead for rent, for everything, the phone for the answering service, all their employees supplying health insurance for their employees, all the materials that are used in the office, whether office supplies or medical supplies, are all part of, quote, overhead. Don't forget malpractice insurance. So then you take a contract that is below your cost of doing business. You can't keep your doors open. It's very difficult. Now, we as physicians always looked at the issues when we watch the news and inflation is going up. And what's the first thing you hear when they interview a business owner? Well, we just have to pass the costs on to our uh, consumers. Yes. Anyone who's listening to this, who's a business person, even in a union, the healthcare industry or system doesn't operate in a normal consumer business relationship. So it is frustrating and I don't think a lot of the public understands that the prices are fixed. And never in my career did an insurance company ever come to me and ask what my cost of doing business is. They set the rates, and you have to decide, are you going to take the rate or not? They don't really negotiate. And that's why I mentioned earlier, some of the big groups tried to get together to get negotiating power. But really, we want to take care of patients. So it's really difficult to kind of, quote, go on strike against insurance or against your patients. And that's where physicians are somewhat struggling with all these healthcare initiatives. Going back to DSHS, if somebody is unfortunately hospitalized without coverage, the hospitals do want to help. They will uh, help with their business office or a medical social worker to help the patient sign up for coverage. And then the hospital, I think, can be reimbursed retrospectively for that patient's care once they get them on? Yeah, the hospitals will file for you when you get admitted for Medicaid if they see you are in the potential to get coverage. The most difficult patients are people who are not eligible for Medicaid. They're either between jobs or have a small consulting business or a landscaper or someone like that, and they come into the hospital and have these big bills 
And where are you going to go for those bills? You usually can negotiate discounts, which I would strongly recommend. I would not pay initially the bill you get from the hospital, which is quite heavy. So it's unfortunate when you get sick in an emergency and you don't have insurance company, either society or you are going to have to come up with some form of paying that bill. So that kind of leads us to, again, this may be just your opinion, but what do you see as future trends to try to solve this very complex issue? Well, Rich, that is the million dollar question. You know, we have actually excellent health care in the United States, but again, can you get access to the health care? Can you afford the health care? So we know it's good. You look at Canada, for instance, they have different rules. It's very frustrating when you go and advocate for the patients and they say, well, what about Canada? Everyone's covered. Well, they are covered, but they ration healthcare very significantly there. I don't know if the United States wants that model where things are significantly delayed. A lot of people will cross the border to get a CAT scan and just pay cash at these radiology offices set up along the border because they don't want to wait if they got terrible back pain to get a scan. So, you know, it's a trade-off between getting a CT scan when you have a headache or not. If you go to some of these countries, you can see models that work and really the data is not so bad for the severe illnesses, but we have patients who really want care and they want it when they want it. And other countries that's not available. Most countries do have a private public healthcare system. We actually do somewhat because Medicare and Medicaid, which insure multiple millions of people, is government run. But we do have a lot of people with union benefits and private insurance. So this is being looked at all the time. I really encourage people to really talk to their legislature, talk to their, to get involved in their healthcare benefits if you feel that something is not being handled right. A lot of times it does take an act of Congress to correct some things. Yeah, we uh, look at Great Britain and Canada as sort of uh, countries that have more national health service, but they're having struggles. Yes. I mean, Britain tried to do total national health care, and now they have private. Canada is still fairly nationalized, but even each province is different. British Columbia is different than Ontario, for instance, or Quebec. So they also have, but it is frustrating when you say healthcare is a right. It's not in the constitution, but people should have healthcare and maybe it should be like a utility or something, but we're not there yet. No, and we still have big gaps. We have excellent care when you can get it, when you're covered. But if you're rural in certain parts of this country, we still have high infant mortality. We still have really areas that are underserved as far as medical care. And the populations in those areas suffer. Right. I mean, I do like to be optimistic and say the vast, vast majority of citizens in the United States have coverage. I mean, we have like 340 million people. We may have 20 million, 30 million who don't or between insurances or for some reason haven't plugged in or fill out the proper forms. So the majority of people do have coverage. But again, the government pays differently if it's an urban area versus a rural area. Can the one hospital in, in a certain county stay open just because the government is not paying adequately? I mean, there's so many behind the scenes questions 
But a lot of people have basic coverage, but then where does the rubber meets the road? How does that actually get them taken care of? It's such a complex question. I love to listen to Dr. Willie Underwood, who is now the chair of the Board of Trustees of the American Medical Association, talk about how the system, not just medical delivery, but the entire system should work so that we don't leave people hung out to dry in rural areas or urban areas. And, you know, somebody who just is not in a popular area due to demographics for reimbursement. But how do we make reimbursement attractive? Maybe, as he says, we have a reduced lease rate. It costs less to run the office in those areas so you can attract practitioners who don't have as high overhead. So the fact that they're getting DSHS still makes sense. We have to look at the total solution, not just at the providers. I think from the provider's point of view, the doctors want to take care of the people. That's the bottom line. And when you see physicians kind of not going and setting up a shingle anymore, it's because of these issues that we hear about at meetings or talking to our colleagues. And they say, listen, I'll just get paid based on the hospital system. I'll take a salary. And I don't need to worry about the patients. I will just focus on their care. So that's kind of what's happened in the urban areas. Um, I'm not saying that's necessarily the best in general because we didn't get into this, but certain healthcare systems are religiously run and they don't allow for reproductive rights. They don't allow for sterilization procedures. So there's a lot of things that I think the public needs to be aware of when their hospital is run by certain organizations. As you said, it is not as simple. So any other thoughts or just? No, I just want people to know that the providers want to take care of you. It's all this stuff that's behind the scenes. I really encourage the public to look at their benefit package and get involved with their employee through their union or through the government so they are properly taken care of. Excellent. Well, Dr. Frankel, thank you. Truly appreciate your spending the time to cover a a really overwhelming and complex concern and try to bring some clarity to the listeners about this really important subject. Very important. It does change regularly. So we may have to do a part two or part three at some point. (laughs) Look forward to it. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Thank you. This completes another episode of the original Guide to Men's Health podcast. We wish to thank all guests who volunteered their time and knowledge. The information presented is the opinion of the speakers. The show's recordings are engineered and edited by Sean Fox. Episode titles and descriptions, as well as editing assistance, are provided by Dr. Kathleen O'Connor, Ph.D. Music for our show is San Juan Bells. Written and performed by Dr. David Weidig. The podcast is sponsored and published by the Washington State Urology Society. The original Guide to Men's Health is an original publication of the Washington State Urology Society. Reproduction and use without the expressed or written consent of the society is prohibited. For more information about men's health and previous episodes, as well as additional recommended resources, visit us online at the original guide to men's health.com. This is Dr. Richard Pellman thanking you for listening and reminding you to take care of yourself.